collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. I'm pleased this morning to have with me Rosalind Thomas. Good morning, Ros. Good morning, Rita. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> always a pleasure. Always a pleasure here as well. So, Roz, you have your own radio show, which is The Power of Food. I've been pleased to be your guest a couple of times. So I'm glad to kind of have you in my living room for a change. <laughs> So I always kick off by asking, um, so this, this episode is kicking off a new theme this month, which is the impact of white supremacy on our bodies and yeah. how that relates to systems. And I, I chose that topic for this month because given all the pressure we've been under, in particular in the couple of last years since COVID, but also the last four years for those of us who have felt consistently triggered by this administration, I suspect that around the 20th of this month, we're gonna have a huge like download, yeah. right? Like there's, there's something that we're gonna feel in our bodies that's different from what we felt up until now. And so part of choosing the body this month was for us to be, really be aware of how white supremacy impacts our bodies, how stress impacts our bodies and how triggers impact our bodies. So that as our bodies shift and change, we can shift and change with them. And before we get deep into that in the meanders of the body, the question I generally ask guests when they first arrive is, tell me a story about you that allows the listener to know you a little bit more the way I know you. And that also kind of tells a story about why all this is important to you. Wow, that's a broad question. I'm a child of the 60s. And so I grew up with the Black Power Movement. I'm also the child of West Indian parents from Barbados. So I grew up in a dual cultural household. I didn't know that until I went to college. But I came from parents who came to this country from a place that was government run. They were black and prominent positions in the government. And that tends to instill in one a very different feeling of personal power. So I grew up in a household in which I was always told, one, you're equal, I was told, that uh, no one is better than you and you are not better than anyone else. 
I came, as I mentioned before, I was also a child of the Black Power Movement. The Panthers came to rise. It was the rise of the Black Panthers during my young adulthood. And so that informed a lot of who I am. But I did not realize it, the, um, the degree to which I was affected. I went to work in corporate America and corporate America worked in finance, worked for management consultants, worked for tax attorneys. So I was always in the belly of the beast, hiding. I, I realized now I was hiding. I was always hiding in, in place. When I retired a couple of years ago, I realized that, well, even when I was working there, I started to be disenchanted because I felt, well, we're not really curing cancer in here. And what I'm doing is not rocket science. And I felt that there was more to do. And so when I retired, I basically recreated myself and started to figure out what do I really care about? And I came to understand that I really do care about people. I care about people. I care about, I've become an ardent student of history and food. And I've always loved food. I grew up with great food. I've always been curious about food. And food has been the entree for me into the more social activist, political activist um, aspect of my life that is continually unfolding. So that's a snapshot of how I got to where I am today. Looking at food, food justice, it started out with wanting people to be informed about food and where food comes from. And if we embrace the food, then we will hopefully begin to embrace the people behind the food. How do you eat tamales and then want to leave out Mexicans? How do you do that? But that only you're able to do that because you don't see the people behind the food, but you're eating the food. So let's take down that wall. And that led to being aware of food justice, working for the food trust, managing the farmer's markets one year, becoming aware of the SNAP programs, and really starting to interact with more grassroots people. Because when one is in the corporate structure, you one interacts with a, a very, very different type of person. So I now feel like I have the ability to cross, it's like osmosis, cross between the barriers and having an understanding of what goes on and the mindset on both sides of that, those barriers. And what got you to start paying attention to the body? and to what we take in in our bodies. I always grew up health conscious. My mother, once again, she was not a great supporter of doctors. So I grew up with the old remedies. I remember when I sprained my ankle, she didn't take me to the doctor. She did the weirdest thing, which now makes sense. She wrapped my ankle with brown paper in apple cider in vinegar and wrapped my foot. 
And it seems like weird at the time, but when we know about vinegar, apple cider vinegar now, it is it draws out inflammation. So I grew up always very, very health conscious, and I'm a child of the 60s. Once again, the emphasis began to be placed on um, health and wellness, and I've always carried that forward. And so about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, one of my really good friends started an organization or a movement or a health um, called FEM, in which she began to investigate how emotions live in the body. And particularly for us as women, we are not allowed, or we, there's that good girl syndrome that we must always be the good girl. And we have to hope, never really express the emotions that we want to express. And I began to be aware of how those emotions that are held in the body begin to affect our health. Also in my twenties, I began to dance. I love dance, I love movement. I was a couch potato up until graduating from college and then all of a sudden took a jazz exercise class and then loved it and wound up taking classes at Carnegie Hall, taking ballet classes, which my enthusiasm really outweighed my actual in, innate abilities. <laughs> one ballet teacher well, saying to me, not that left foot, the other one. Oh. I've never been daunted by things like that. I feel like I, I paid my money, I take my class. And it, I enjoy my class. And so I became very much more body aware at the time without realizing it. I just knew that there was joy in movement for me. And I was able to move across the floor in ways that I'd never imagined myself in literally in flight across the floor. So I've always been body conscious, body aware. And it was with the inception of FEM that I began to be aware of the emotions that live in the body. And I became more emotionally aware of my body. So what have you learned about the impact that white supremacy has had on your body? Oh, that is quite a question. This past year in 2020, this same person, Bernadette Pleasant, created an online course called 400 Years, Unlearning Racism and Through the Body. And we started, we used a book, one of the mod modalities was reading a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menikin, who is a trauma therapist based in Minneapolis. And he posits that white supremacy lives in all of our bodies. It's fairly well known that African-Americans here in this country are basically around the world in any in, in system in which we've been enslaved. We have internalized a lot of stress. Our electrical systems are badly damaged. And the increased stress 
physical and emotional and psychic stress that we have experienced has caused us to be susceptible to this um, high blood pressure, heart disease, um, all kinds of cancers. And I was aware of that on an intellectual level. Once we began to investigate white supremacy and how it lives in the body, I began to firsthand experience the emotion that comes, that one feels, that I began to feel when presented with certain situations. And I can remember being in college. I went to school upstate New York and walking across campus one of the experiences that always scared me was walking by a group of white men, young white boys who had been drinking. I had an innate fear of that. And there's been scientific work that gives evidence to the fact that trauma travels through the body through generations. So this may, you know, be hindsight being accurate, I look back on those that, that particular experience and realize that perhaps some place in my family history, there was an occasion for which one needed to be afraid. And that had traveled down through my genetic structure to me. So, we began to investigate white body supremacy in all of our bodies. As I said, it's fairly evident and it's, it's widely accepted that African-Americans have embodied the trauma of racism. But what we did not investigate was the trauma that is in white bodies. Because white bodies have have experienced trauma back through the Middle Ages, through the pogroms. Absolutely. Living in serfdom, living in hunger, living, being brutalized, being drawn and quartered. We began to investigate all of those, the history of all of that. We began to investigate how just reading about those incidents, how did that feel in the body? And you, we really started to open up to the feelings and the emotions and the tightening and the clenching of the, the solar plexus and in the heart center and you know, feeling the throat constrict. We began to really understand that you cannot separate racism from the body. Trauma lives in the body and that it is pointless to try to heal racism on an intellectual level solely. Because what you're dealing with is the lizard brain, that fight, fight, flee, or fear mechanism that protects us. It is there to protect us. And it is the, it is the gargoyle at the gate. And unless that gargoyle and that protective mechanism is dismantled or allowed to feel or made to feel that this is a safe space, 
one never does not get past that to the thinking brain that allows you to make a different choice. And because so many of us live unconsciously, we get caught up in that lizard brain syndrome. And that's what happens. That's, as I said, it, it, this has been a great learning experience for me to understand that one has to feel safe. One has to have the ability to create a sense of safety for oneself. And so that one is able to bypass that lizard brain to make a different choice. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I love hearing you say that we can't talk people like cognitively work people out of racism. Because one of the things that frustrated me about the book White Fragility, as well as it was written, is that I don't think you can talk pe white people out of being perceiving themselves as fragile. Because part of why we perceive ourselves as fragile is trauma. And so we have to heal those wounds so that we can actually take a deep breath in the moment and say, oh, no, I'm not about to die because someone's questioning me, or I'm not about to die because someone's contradicting me, and I'm not about to die because I'm uncomfortable. I'm fine. I, and I agree with you, Rita, and I think that there's also another piece to that, and it's that white fragility tends to protect whites from having to take responsibility. Absolutely. For the privilege that they have. Mm -hmm. It allows them to hide behind the privilege. And it once again, it also there this it involves black bodies because when when we are confronted with white fragility, we as blacks are supposed to now take care of you. We need yep. to take care of you because you can't handle this. And so what we've always done is take care of you. And if you look at the historical context of that, one of the books I had read was Never Caught. And it's the story of Ona Judge, who was Martha Washington's slave. She was her personal slave. Martha Washington never wanted to move to New York at the time to inhabit the White House in New York. And she was wringing her hands. Her slaves had to take care of her emotionally before she could even begin to think about the precariousness of her own situation. And this is what we have done throughout history is at to our own detriment, we have had to take care of white, um, the fragility, the emotional fragility of whites. I agree with what you're saying, but I think that that is, it sugarcoats the issue of the unwillingness of whites to look at the position that they have taken. Absolutely. I mean, I see it as a both and. I think we're unwilling to look because we think we're unlovable if we're not perfect. I mean, I think that's like the whole perfectionism, which is part of white fragility, right? I think for many African-Americans, like it's, it's hard to see like the challenges of white identity as, as painful. Well, you know, because I think you, I mean, you guys have dealt with some, you know, horrific 
horrific, horrific yeah. treatment. And I agree yeah. with you, but what has changed, what has shifted is, and this I'm speaking for myself, I no longer feel responsible for taking care of someone else's feelings. It's not my responsibility. This is the system that you have created and it is incumbent upon you to handle your business with this. And yeah. at some point then perhaps we can all, because we have issues in the black community that we need to deal with. And whites, you need to talk to each other. Absolutely, and, and that's our responsibility. Each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's where you know the white fragility comes in because you're not calling out each other. You're letting the, the remarks be made. You're saying nothing. And that will always come down. The situation will continue unless you, each, everyone stands up and calls out everything. And that requires some kind, some type of courage. Absolutely. Yep, it's, it's the way breaking the, the silence and the complacency and you're absolutely, I agree yeah. with you. Like it's about the silence. giving up on people of color caretaking us and actually us beginning to exactly. caretake each other. Not from a place of complacency, but from a place of care. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so once again, when you look at the, the trauma complex here, you whites have been taught that that's what black bodies do. Black bodies take care of white bodies. Mm -hmm. And when black bodies no longer take care of white bodies, then, and be, which implies a lack of control now, you no longer have control over black bodies, then the reaction is swift and brutal. We're lynched, we're shot in the street, we're beaten. We're disenfranchised. Each time we have made strides, despite the trauma that we have experienced, there has been a backlash because we are no longer taking care. We're no longer subservient. And that's an aspect of white fragility that needs to be looked at. Yeah. And each moment in history has that backlash, right? Oh, each time we have. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why the Trump administration is not an anomaly. Well, it's not an anomaly. I mean, if you, it's, if you look it's a at backlash. the yep. election of Obama, when Obama was elected, Obama's election, I believe, set the stage for Trump. Absolutely. There was absolutely. a... Derek Bell, he was a professor at Harvard, a law professor at Harvard, and then he moved to NYU and he wrote a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which is a series of vignettes about Black life in America. And one of the things he said was that the average white American will be satisfied to be economically disenfranchised as long as he can feel racially superior. Yep. And Obama's election flew in the face of that. So we see the backlash. So thinking about this month and thinking about everything that's happened, right? And thinking about January 20th, 
like, what do you think people can expect to like feel in their bodies in this month as this presidency is finally clo- coming to a close? Yeah, and yet, yeah. You yeah, know, what do you think? I really think that um, the inauguration is anticlimactic. I think that there was a sense of collective risk relief on November 4th when Biden won the election. Hmm. I think that's when people collectively exhaled because it was done. And I think that a lot of people just decided, oh, um, I know I decided, okay, we just need to get through till January 20th. Because I knew for a fact that Trump was going to salt the earth as he left the White House. It was going to be salt, scorched earth and salting the earth. And because I knew that he would be pissed off at everyone because he was not elected. But I think there was a collective sigh of relief on November 4th. Okay. I think that, you know, January 20th is... It, we knew it was a done deal on November 4th. So you trusted that the institutions would hold and that like January 20th would happen without a problem, like with many problems, but it ultimately would happen. Yes. No, for the first couple of, maybe the first week or two, I was clutching my pearls because the assault on the system was relentless. But when I began to see that there were people who actually were holding the line against him, that's when I knew that we were going to be all right. When the federal judges that he appointed actually stood up and said, well, this is unconstitutional. You do not have a legal basis for this lawsuit. That's when I began to exhale a little more because there were people who were, we were heroes in the face of this assault. So that's when I got my exhale is when the Supreme Court dismissed his case. That's when I got my exhale. I didn't get it on November 4th at all. Like I was still in a, in a, in a, just personally, not no right or wrong, like just different experiences. Right. And I love that you use the expression. I clenched my pearls because it's literally an experience of having a clenched body, right? Like that's what we're talking about. It's the state of danger and the state of fear that has us walk around clenched. And so, um, I think the clenching, uh, released a little bit when the Supreme court dismissed his case. That, that one, it released a little bit more yesterday because I yes. expected something like yesterday to happen for months and that it didn't end up in a bloodbath to, was kind of infuriating in some ways, right? Because of course, had they been people of color, they wouldn't have been treated with such white gloves. But there was also a, a sign of relief for me because I know how many people are armed. Like I know how many Trump supporters are armed. And so there was also a concern that it would turn into a bloodbath. It's interesting. We talk about the news at the same time as if it were something internal and external. And it is at the same time external and internal, right? Like there's an internal experience, even if it's an external. But um, 
to throw something else into the mix here, I meditate. I meditate daily. And here of late, I have made, I decided to meditate for an hour a day. And what meditation does is it, it calms the electrical system. And it begins to remove one emotionally from what is going on. So the external, I would read the news, but not necessarily be as affected by it because it was not working in the emotional body. My emotional body was calm. One of the things that I have learned and through Resmo's book is the value of a calm body. If one can calm your, if you can keep your body calm, particularly in the face of experiences that are unnerving or produce uncertainty, then you are able to, that's the feeling that one begins to have of safety because you are in a calm body and you are making decisions are, and having opinions from a space of a calm mind. You're not operating out of that lizard brain. And I think that that's what meditation does, is it tends to take us out of the lizard brain experience. Hmm. So I think that meditation is an antidote <laughs> to um, what goes on out here in the news cycle. What have you learned from this work about your own body, about how you internalize? I had a huge learning and a huge experience. During the course of 400 years, we had a panel of black men who presented because one can't speak about racism without including black men. And then we, um, decided that we were going to have a panel of the Black women who were part of the support staff for the course. And we were going to tell our experiences about racism and how racism lives in the body. And I told two stories, one which was okay, but then I told the story from my childhood. And I have to say ahead of time that I had no idea how this was going to impact me, me and change my life. I told about going to Catholic school and being the smartest kid in the class. It was always me and another woman. I, I remember her name to this day. We either came first or second. And I never felt attached to Catholicism, to Catholic school. And I decided that I wanted to leave the school system in the sixth grade. And I've always been self-willed apparently. And I wanted to take an interest exam for Hunter Prep, which was at that time fairly prestigious in the city. And I spoke to the school about it and the, the exam date went by, nothing was said. So I got to the eighth grade and at that point, one had to take a, and I don't know if this is still the system now, but one took a system-wide examination in order for placement in any of the Catholic schools in the system. And I placed in the 97th percentile. 
which gave me access to any of the schools in the system. And I was this little kid from Harlem. I, I was always downtown. My mom always took me downtown. So I was aware that there was a world outside of Harlem. And I elected to the school that I elected to wanted to go to was on 77th Street in Lexington Avenue. And I was denied access to the school. I was denied and I was told that because I had so many opportunities, they were going to save that space for someone who did not have as many opportunities as I. Yes. Oh my God, my jaw is dropped on the yeah. floor. Um and so that was racism. Now, I didn't have language for it, nor did my mother have language for it. But you know it when you see it. It's like porn. You don't know how to describe it sometimes, but you know it when you see it. <laughs> racism porn. Yes. Right. And it hit my body. And But at the same time, I had also taken the test for Bronx science, which was a much more difficult test than the school, the test for the Catholic school system, and I was accepted. So I opted out. I was going to, I was going to leave the school system and go to Bronx Science. And when I notified the um, archdiocese, they called my mother. And they told my mother if she would make sure I stayed inside the school, the Catholic school system, they would ensure me a full ride to the new school that they were building in the upper reaches of the Bronx. I would get four years, a, four full, a full scholarship for four years. And I said to her, no, I, had, I wanted to go to science. And so as punishment, I, when I graduated from the eighth grade, I did not get the General Excellence Award, which I had literally worked for and earned. They gave me the math award and gave the general excellence award to someone who was going on to a Catholic high school. As a kid at the age of like 11 or 12, that smacked me. It, it hit my body. It was never discussed. My mother and I never discussed it. And it informed my life for years, because what I learned, racism taught me, was that why bother working for, working really hard for something, because you're never going to be rewarded for your efforts. And it was only when I told that story this past year that I realized how deeply embedded that was in my body. And when it came up, I began to sob and I cried for days. And I created a great life in spite of that. But that lived inside of my body. Now you think of how many people experience that. How many kids experience that? How many adults experience that? And that what we hold to be true lives in the body. Mm. That's how we internalize racism. That's how we internalize trauma. By the, we talk about the microaggressions that we experience every day and have to overcome. 
but they accumulate over a period of time. I just hate that we live in a world where that happened to you. Like, hate it. Well, yeah, I, you know, be living in a world that, you know, it, where it happened to me. But that's what, you know, this is the America that we live in to a great extent. And there's also to notice that you were in New York City, yeah. right? So Which you prop- so Yep. So there's both the slap in the face. So the other piece around, I feel like trauma in the body, right? Is there is no, there are no attenuating circumstances. It's like trauma hits your body, period, right? Yeah. And I also recognize that youth in other parts of our country that didn't even claim to be as progressive as New York was you know, there are many people who have had those experiences even earlier in life. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. the fact, so you had it like later in life because you're in progressive New York City. You still had it, I right? Because we're not. You know, I was 11, 12 years old. And that's why somatic movement, that's why movement is so important because when we get traumatized, we kind of pop out of our bodies. You hear people talk about women talk about when they're being sexually assaulted, what they do is they leave their bodies yep. in order to get through the experience. And so when we experience emotional trauma, we pop out of our bodies and very often we do not come back into our bodies. Or if we do come back into our bodies, we take up smaller space inside of our bodies. Hmm. We don't fully live inside of our bodies. And that's why movement to drumming, dancing, puts us back in our bodies. It, it makes us whole again. That's why exercise is so good, because it puts us back in our bodies. Yeah. Do you know exactly where in your body you stored that experience? Wow, that's an interesting question. I stored it in... What, what comes up for me is I stored it in my solar plexus. It was because that's where our protection lies in our solar plexus. You know, when you think about whenever you, you're in a situation in which you feel threatened, it's, it hits the solar plexus. And that's where I stored it. So because it was the part of me that protected me from further disappointment. Hmm. And how does it now to tell the story? Like, how does it feel in your body now? Oh, I feel completely relaxed. They say that, you know, when healing is complete, you can tell the story without emotion. And I don't have an emotional response to it anymore. But I was a mess for weeks. I was a mess for weeks. And what happens, and once again, this is my personal experience with releasing trauma in the body. I, my world has changed. I look at the world differently because I don't have that nameless fear. One of the things that trauma does is it tends to change the brain so that one becomes fearful without even realizing what one is afraid of. 
I was always afraid. And to take steps to do something different, but always wanting to. And that has changed for me. I now live very, very differently. I live without a lot of fear. I live more fully in my body than I ever have before. How can you tell? We know our lives. How can I tell? Sitting here with you, talking to you about this. Being part of the 400 years, the, the support staff for 400 years. I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. Bernadette and I have been friends for years, for 30, 35 years. And we, she literally had to wrestle me to the ground. You put up a fight, didn't I you? I really realize? did put up a fight. I had every excuse in the, in the world why I didn't want to expose myself. Um, I find that I have a voice. I find that I have some particular ideas for a personal project that I want to pursue and that I am now pursuing. These are things that I would have talked myself out of years ago, as late as last year. I more or less know when you did it, and I'm present to the fact that you're less apologetic and more like owning of your voice, yeah. like a lot more present, a lot more owning your voice, owning your expertise, owning your experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I began to see myself differently. I began literally beautiful. to see myself as others saw me. Mm. Because I would hear, you know, people would say you're this and you're that, and I would take it in, but it would never land anywhere. And once again, it was an intellectual exercise. I took it in intellectually, but emotionally, I could not identify with it. Mm. First of all, congratulations, because that... <laughs> You know, it takes courage to cry for weeks, right? Yeah, it takes it a lot of courage. It, it takes a lot of trust, right? It takes yeah, a lot no, of trust yeah. in oneself because you have to trust that it's going to end at some point to allow yourself to cry for weeks. And that was frightening. That was frightening yeah. to me because I thought at one point, and I understand when people say they don't want to deal with their anger, they don't want to deal with their pain, they're afraid to deal with their anger and their pain because they're afraid that they'll get lost in it. Yes, and or that it will break them. And I understand that for me, it was facing the grief hmm. and being afraid that I was going to get lost in the grief. And, it, and once again, we're in COVID, you know, we're in COVID shutdown. So all I could do was just trust that we, I will get through this. And self-compassion goes a long way. It goes a long, long way towards self-healing. So how did what you learned, what did it teach you about how do we like leverage our bodies and heal our body's power? I think that what's really important is one has to have the courage to face the fear. Oh, a different way that we should not be afraid to hold ourselves accountable. 
And Resma describes it as clean pain or dirty pain. And he said, clean pain is just the pain that one experiences when you face a situation. You own up to it, you hold yourself accountable, you acknowledge your responsibility inside that situation or for that situation. And you're able, you have the conversations you need to have, and then you move forward. That's clean pain. Dirty pain is the pain of when one decides that it's, I'm not responsible. This is someone else's responsibility. It's someone else's fault. Um, white fragility. <laughs> you know, I can't handle this. And so therefore, I'm just going to shove it back under the covers. Or, or blame to... somebody else and transfer it over to somebody else. Exactly. By causing pain to somebody else. I'm going to exactly. hurt you more than you hurt me. It, it, Absolutely. In the avoidance of your own pain. Yeah. So clean pain is one, you know, being willing to experience the pain of healing versus dirty pain when you're unwilling to experience the pain of healing. So when we think about the power we have together as collectives, how does that apply? How do you use it? How do you apply it? Ah, that's a very interesting question. I find that since I hold myself a lot more accountable, I hold a lot of other people a lot more accountable. And so I ask, much more difficult questions and I'm willing to work with people. I think that we all need to come together in with some degree of honesty. I need to be, I now am able to, to really speak to my truth and I'm willing to listen to your truth. Because at the end of the day, what I realize is that we're all in this together. And what you want is basically the same thing of what I want. It's how we perceive the, the road to get there. What road do we see to get there? They, during the election, they, at the polls, someone asked two voters who they had voted for. One woman said that she had voted for Trump. And the next question was, why? And she said, because I want to feel safe. The next person they interviewed was someone who had voted for Biden. Same question. Why did you vote for Biden? She said, because I want to feel safe. So we all want the same thing. We just have to understand how we need to work together in order to get the same thing. And what I understand now is that we have lived in a society in which it's a zero sum game. If I get something that means that someone else feels that they're not going to get something. Yes, and our systems were built that way, yes. right? Like our systems were built to protect the needs of some over yes. the needs of others. Exactly. You know, and the needs of the, the many, we've been swindled and bamboozled in terms of the information that we get. Absolutely. So we are pitted against each other. So we fight over like one slice of the pie when we and don't realize that the rest of the pie isn't taken by someone else. 
And we have to begin to open up our eyes to that. So that is, I'm, I'm a lot more honest in my conversations about what I see, what I, what I understand, what I have learned historically. I think that learning history is so very important because, and particularly for, I think, white Americans learning the history of slavery and the absolute barbarism of it. Because so very often we are told, well, that happened 400 years ago, or you've gotten the vote, you have this, you have that. Aren't you satisfied? But people don't realize that while in de facto, what is it, de jure versus de facto? Um, while there have been laws on the books, they've not been implemented. Yep. So we're still fighting. We're still fighting for equality. We're still fighting for an equal chance, an equal opportunity. You know, very quickly, we'll bring that up. I want to take a step back towards um, to just pick up what you talked about before you were talking about accountability. Right. And I, um, mm -hmm. I love that because certainly one of the roles you've played for me since you and I have been working more closely together in the past year has been to say, every time I look tired, you look tired. Why can't you stop? Why can't you, when are you taking a day off? When are you taking a break? What are you going to eat? Right. <laughs> and it's been, and I love that you were saying you asked bolder, more honest questions, because I've definitely been on the butt end of it and been very thankful for it, actually. <laughs> um, because it was, it's like just a question. And I remember because it's, it is a holding accountable for self-care. Yeah. And I think it's very important in our communities, in our businesses, in our movements that we hold each other accountable for our self-care. Because no one's gonna, I mean, it would be great if vacation packages fell from the sky, but so far yeah. they don't, yeah. <laughs> right? Vacation packages don't fall from the sky, dinners don't, breaks don't, vacation days don't, sick days don't fall from the sky. We actually have to create the space for it. And I think part of the trauma, right, is that in the beginning, we do it a little bit forcefully, right? And then yes. eventually we get to a place where it's like, no, I, I've worked enough. I'm worth it. Like I'm worth it. I deserve it. But in the beginning, it's, you don't even know if you're worth it. It's weird. It's like, oh my God, if, if you're well, one of those people who's used to working a lot. Well, because we've been sold the whole concept of um, the work ethic. Yes. We work constantly. And if you're not working, then you're a laggard. You're, you're slacking. Meanwhile, you have a whole group of people who are terribly wealthy who do literally nothing. Most wealthy is what exactly. I meant to say. Yeah. Exactly. And so we have to understand so often we need to question, you know, where do these values come from? Who told us that we need to work incessantly? We need to work ourselves to death. Yeah. And so when you begin to embrace the concept of self-care, there is that sense of guilt. Oh, I'm not working. And so I must be doing something wrong. And when you begin to understand that you cannot give 
from an empty vessel. You have to be able to give from the overflow. And women in particular are taught this. You work all day, you come home, you, you work in the house, you take care of the children, to take care of your husband. And we, we, we're empty. We are empty. Whereas if we just take care of ourselves, then you begin to see the world differently. Yes. And the world becomes, when you begin to make the world your world, each one of us makes our personal world more pleasurable. Then we have so much more to give. And we're in a much better mood to give it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So the last question I want to ask you, I know that with a couple of groups, you've been reading um, Resma's work, My Grandmother's Hands. Can you speak a little bit to what you learned about how that impacted the group? How has that shifted the group, the people? Like, what have you noticed? Oh, there's one story that stands out in Bar Relief. One woman said that through reading Resma's book and understanding the reaction of the lizard brain and how she's been programmed, white bodies have been programmed, to be afraid of black bodies. She said that she has changed her reaction, literally consciously changed her reaction that she has when walking down the street and seeing a black man. She said, prior to reading Resma's book and prior to taking 400, the 400 years course, she said she would feel a sense of trepidation whenever she saw a black man. And she said that consciously, she disengaged her lizard brain and decided that she was not going, she was going to calm her body whenever she saw this man, um, a black man, and how that has changed how she walks in her life among black men. Now I'm gonna give you another side to that story. I participated in a book group here in Germantown are reading post-traumatic slave syndrome. And there was a young black man in the group. He had to be in his, oh, I wanna say late thirties, early forties. And he, he talked about his reaction when he first realized that women would see him in the street and they were afraid of him. He said the first time that happened to him and he saw the reaction to him, he said he was so upset about it. And th in this group, in this book group, this young Black man sat and he started to cry because this had affected him so deeply that just as a man, women would just distrust him because of his skin color. So we're all affected by this. We're all traumatized by this by this narrative out there that black bodies are dangerous, inherently dangerous, that white bodies need to be afraid of black bodies. And I haven't even gone into the, the whole concept of what, you know, that police bodies, you know, how that affects black bodies. But when she said that inside the book room, I was just, it felt like, wow, victory victory because someone has come conscious and she's not the only one but that's the story that stands out 
for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it's also so important that you were there to witness it, right? Yeah. That he wasn't just alone reading this book at home and having the reaction, but there was a group of people to witness him and be with him through it. People talked about, I think it's a book that is so much better absorbed in community. And a couple of people mentioned that. They said, you know, I read this chapter at home, or one woman said, I read this chapter at home with my husband, but hearing it read aloud in community, it's a much different experience. Because then you, being held, it's a, it's a different type of container. And you can actually, and we would stop periodically. And I would ask, well, what are you feeling? Because you, I would hear it in someone's voice as we were reading particularly difficult passages and you, you would hear it in the voice, the voice would constrict or there would just be a different tenor in the voice. And I would stop and say, what are you feeling now? And one woman said, you know, I feel my heart center being constricting. So it's incumbent upon us to become much more conscious, to live much more consciously, to be aware of what we're feeling. We live through our bodies. Our bodies tell the truth. Martha Graham said the body doesn't lie. That's why she said dancers should rehearse and practice every day. She said the one day you may be able to get away with it, but by day two, you can see it. The body never lies. Roz, thank you for being with us today. And thank you for sharing all your depth and wisdom. Do you have any last thoughts and how can people reach you? People can reach me, actually, goodness, rosaru1 at live.com, R-O-S-A-R-O-O-1 at live.com. Yeah, that's how I'm able to be reached. Do you have any last thoughts before no, we close? I think my last thought was um, the body never lies. I truly do believe that. The body never lies. And thank you, Rita. This was challenging. <laughs> this was definitely, definitely challenging because you've asked me to start to investigate a very different aspect of my life. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for your openness to sharing it with me, <laughs> with us, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>